And let's give a warm welcome to the host of The H Spot, David Hirschkopf. Hello, everyone, and thanks for coming back. You're in for a special treat today with a friend of mine, Wayne Wu, who is a private equity force. He actually was a Texas kid who went to Santa Clara University, got started with his CPA at auditing at Deloitte & Touche, went into investment banking at RBC, then served as a CFO, Vice President of Corporate Development at Thomason Auto Group, and then to his current role as a partner at VMG Partners. He has served or serves on about a dozen boards, including Mighty Leaf Tea, Justin's, Perfect Snacks, and Velocity Snacks. And he co-hosts the podcast Unfinished Biz, which features fascinating founder interviews. And I think they probably just recorded number 50, episode 50. Wayne also lives near me in Northern California in Marin, is married, has three kids, and I believe has given up soccer and basketball in favor of yoga. Hey, Wayne, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for the kind intro. You know, yeah. a, a couple of things. Just know that when I joined, I certainly didn't join as a partner. I, I joined actually as the second junior team member in the history of BMG. So certainly a partner today, but I essentially had to put my desk together. So it's certainly been a, a fun journey. You earned your stripes, huh? You know, we, we always talk about rolling up our sleeves. It certainly started out that way and continues to be that way for sure. So do you do like the yoga where it's like a thousand degrees in the room or do you do the other kind? I like hot, not like Bikram. I'm down for like the 80, low 90s kind of temperature, but like, you know, not like a hundred degrees. It's funny you mentioned that. I frankly haven't done yoga in over a year. I haven't gotten into like the video-based yoga. I like the community aspect of being in a room with other people. It's funny, I was actually thinking about this morning now that I'm fully vaxxed up, I'm like, maybe I should go to yoga again, you know? So it's funny you actually bring that up. Things are happen for a reason and that's that's to get you back in, I guess. Absolutely. um, I mean, how did your sort of background and range of experiences lead you to become a private equity person? When I graduated from college from Santa Clara, you know, it was right after the dot-com bust. It was literally, you know, almost right after September 11th, sadly occurred in 2001. So I started public accounting and I had a great opportunity to learn kind of the nuts and bolts of how these Fortune 500 to smaller businesses as well, kind of how they all worked. And, you know, as an auditor, you know, for folks who don't know, senior leaders at these companies almost were forced to talk to me, you know, and so I'm just this kid coming out of college asking him, you know, he's pretty ridiculous questions, but they had to answer them all. And I found it to be a great learning experience. I was always fascinated. I come to learn what investment banking was in terms of capital raising and mergers and acquisitions, things of that nature. I didn't grow up in a family where I had any idea what that was. So I kind of learned that when I was actually in public accounting, I was like, well, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of translate that foundational element of public accounting into you know, more of a finance role and was able to to get a gig at RBC, the capital markets here in San Francisco as a junior analyst. And through a family connection, I ended up in the auto industry and learned how to have more of an operating role for two and a half years. And really reflected on what do I want to do? The combination of all these things and, and finding an entrepreneurial private equity firm would be something really interesting. So I turned that into a job of looking for a job in the space. And I joined this organization called ACG here in San Francisco, which is a networking group at a luncheon. I actually made a speech 
and one of the co-founders of BMG who's since departed, a woman named Scott Case, who's now actually just took on the role as new CEO of J.R. Watkins this past week. So it's great to see her taking the helm there. I'm sure she'll be hugely successful there. But she handed me her business card and I got a chance to meet the BMG team. And like I said, it was a second junior team member. I started on in January 2008 and they haven't been able to get rid of me since. Wow. So it's a combination of, you know, obviously being qualified and and sort of networking and just creating positive, you know, keep your feet moving and things happen. Well, I think it's no different than kind of our philosophy at BMG, which is we want to get to know people and hustle to get to know folks and try to be helpful. And in the spirit of, of meeting interesting people, we're going to make interesting investments along the way, as long as we've been genuinely trying to be additive and helpful to the ecosystem and meet a lot of interesting people and good things will happen. How much do you think the industry is about people versus products and services? It's all intertwined, you know, because those products and services are created by great people. And so those wouldn't have been created if they weren't the vision of an entrepreneur and they wouldn't have been fully harnessed unless they built great teams along the way to help drive awareness of that great product or service. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just backing up a second, I mean, not everyone is super familiar with private equity. So just in general, could you give a sort of basic explanation of what is private equity and and who are the people that work in private equity and where, where does the money come from? It's interesting when you look at private equity versus like public equity. So public equity is stocks that people are able to trade in the public market. So when people buy a public security, they can do it through their brokerage account, things of that nature. Private equity is almost a bit of like a catch-all. So it's firms that are investing in private companies. And although venture capital is technically a different kind of terminology, but it's really a form of private equity. Venture is investing in private companies where the investment comes from. So private equity, they, you know, we have investors who invest in private equity funds and where private equity firms and venture capital firms their investors range from qualified individuals, so those that meet the standards per the SEC to be able to have the wherewithal to make a qualified investment decision to invest in funds, as well as family offices or institutions like things like pensions and endowments, foundations. And so for funds like a VMG or otherwise, it's really an honor to be able to help So much that happens in hospital systems, universities, pensions for folks to be able to retire are driven by the private markets and helping generate returns to to be able to help support hospital systems and scholarships and fellowships and capital improvements for universities, things of that nature. And then through that investment, private equity firms invest in private companies to help grow them, help support entrepreneurs into really achieving their dreams of being able to build the company that they always wanted to build. And in effect, then in a circular fashion, help support university endowments, hospital systems, pensions, and otherwise from all across the globe. And the funds themselves, they sort of range from... $100 $100 million to like several billion? Is that sort of the normal range of funds? I mean, size? they could be very, there's no definition on how small an investment fund could be, a private investment fund, whether it's defined as private equity, growth equity, or venture capital. 
there's no like minimum size and there's no maximum size. If they just end up focusing on different things. They tend to have a finite time window, right? They tend to operate for each fund is like a five to seven to 10 year type of window. They can, you know, it's all, it's all sort of defined by that fund and, and the investors who've chosen to invest in that fund. It really depends. Some can be what they call an evergreen fund that doesn't have a fixed time horizon. Some could have a 10 year life and it all kind of just depends. That makes sense. How do you find the deals? Like generically, not necessarily BMG, but like how do most funds find deals to invest in? It's interesting. You know, I'll, I'll contrast this in that many funds, you know, one of my personal pet peeves are many funds are just constantly in the hamster wheel of deal hunting. And so they're just looking for whatever they can invest in. And oftentimes, you know, depending on size, so the larger the business, a lot of times they're looking for deal flow from the investment banking community that's representing companies or directly reaching out, but still the theme of just trying to find, you know, quote unquote, next week's deal. The, the way I think about the world and the way we think about it at BMG is different in that we think about it from an ecosystem approach, as I mentioned earlier. And how do we genuinely support entrepreneurs, the retailers who sell these types of products and the larger global strategics who are innovating themselves and also tend to acquire these type of brands too. Through those three major pillars of supporting these three constituencies, it'll lead to helping develop healthier and better products for the masses. And, and that's how real change will occur. And so we genuinely spend time with all three of these constituencies in a very genuine, consistent way. And we find that we end up making some interesting investments along the way while we're helping folks. Right. It's almost like a byproduct of doing the right thing. Exactly. It's a byproduct versus the, the direct goal. As I right. mentioned, a lot of folks in the investment community, they're just constantly deal hunting. So it's almost like helping is a byproduct of deal hunting versus focusing on helping and then investments being a byproduct of that. It's almost like flipping the whole typical focus upside down. And that's, you know, that's what makes VMG very different in that regard. Right. And with venture capital, I mean, you traditionally heard that they'd have 10 investments and they really only needed one or two or three to hit big and the other ones could do poorly. And that was sort of a formula that worked. Is that similar with private equity? Like if you have seven investments in a fund, do typically like all of them do well or, you know, an average fund, how does that break down? You know, it's interesting. I mean, this is more of like generalizing, but you would typically see that as a generalization. And it, part of it is just due to stage. So, you know, if you generalize it, venture capital is typically investing in earlier stage businesses. And almost by definition, you're going, because of the level of traction of a, of a given company due to stage, you're going to have some more booms and unfortunately some busts, you know, just almost because of the stage of companies. A lot of quote unquote private equity, you know, again, I'm generalizing, they're investing in later stage businesses that have more traction. So the risk level theoretically is lower, but then so are ultimately the ceiling of probably what the return profile could look like. So just almost just due to stage and traction, the band of 
of returns for private equity is generally thought of as a tighter band because of stage. And then venture capital has a much wider band because it's typically earlier stage. But again, I'm, I'm generalizing, but that's typically kind of how to, and then you have growth equity, which is just kind of in between. Right. And, and obviously there's, as you said before, there's lots of different private equity. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very nuanced. It's, it, it, these are just pure generalizations. Then it's very specifically nuanced. Right. And I know from like my end of things, you know, over the years talking mostly at trade shows to a lot of private equity, the philosophies very widely does, you know, some are like, we'll give you money and we'll let you do your thing. And some are more like, well, we'll take charge. We'll make it grow a lot better and faster, which makes perfect sense. Well, I mean, that's, that's the, you know, the real heart of it is people should focus on partnerships and who can be helpful. In my opinion, kind of how that's the nature of any successful quote unquote marriage, if you will, are two parties that respect each other's strengths and bring something unique to the table that help make both parties more successful, real alignment on what, what they want to build together, and that their values are very much the same and aligned as well. Right. Well, I think you were saying before we started recording about your own podcast, that what you found interesting was that you know all these very successful entrepreneurs didn't have everything figured out. And what I've always found, because I'm very ADD, is that we all have these challenges. And so I assume with good private equity, they would sort of say, the entrepreneur's good at this, let's let them do that. Here's some weaknesses where maybe we can help them if they're open to it. And you sort of shore up those areas and then it's a much more effective combination. Is that sort of the, the philosophy you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. And both having the self-awareness of what they're good at or not, because again, we're all human. You know, just because somebody's in private equity doesn't mean they know everything. I mean, that's couldn't be farther from the truth. Everybody's human. Everybody brings certain strengths to the table and things that are not as much as strengths. And if everybody has self-awareness and alignment around that, and again, and the right values structure in terms of being good human beings and being open-minded, there's a lot of great things that can happen from that. Sort of following up on that theme, aside from the money, how does private equity usually enhance or help a business to grow better or faster after they partner up? That is a nuance, but let's just use consumer products. You know, private equity invests in many different industries, but for purposes of probably this show and this audience, you know, let's think about it from a consumer lens. If there's alignment between entrepreneur and investor, it's around thinking about, well, what are we going to build? And how do you define a win? And what's the strategy to get there? An alignment on strategy. Next, then, comes back to a question you asked earlier in terms of, is it people or products? Well, then it's like, well, how do we build the right team together in order to hit that strategic aligned goal? And how do we bring people with the right values in that represent the same solid foundation of values that is reflected in the culture there? Then in a private equity, the right private equity partner should play a pivotal role in helping support that talent building at the company. Because again, great businesses, great brands are built by great people. So it starts with that. Then it's around also thinking about, well, again, what's a win? And defining if the company is trying to get to a certain trajectory, what's the supply chain look like? Well, an investor should be able to come in and help support the team with contract manufacturing support, you know, in terms of introductions in that arena, or if it's going to be vertically integrated, 
who are folks who can help build that plant and what are some of the capital sort of requirements and thought process they should have retailer relationships. They shouldn't be able to guarantee distribution because I think they'd be overstating what that means, but they should be able to help think through the channel strategy. So which retailers at what time makes sense with what products and at what pricing, as well as the right introductions to help open the door, but then it's up to the brand and the company to run through it. What type of marketing works today? Again, the investor's not the one doing the marketing, but from what they've seen, what's the right type of marketing and how much do benchmarking, how much do people spend towards those goals? If it's a brand, what's the right legal strategy to ensure you own you know, the right trademarks and build a real brand? And how do you pull that all together again and, and move all of this through in a very cohesive fashion? So the right, the right investor and partner can help partner on what the right framework looks like, make the right introductions, help prioritize as board members and partners. But there should be a clear delineation still of who's the operator and who's the investor board member. And, you know, good partnerships, that's very clear and real alignment around that. Right. From your experience, what are usually the one or two things that are most lacking? Like, where are the, like, the low-hanging fruit when you go into a company? It's that's so nuanced. I mean, that really depends on the company. They're to- just totally varied. There's no real It's totally, I mean, it totally varied. Sure. I mean, and that, that goes back to that alignment point around what strengths does each party bring to the table? I mean, one of the things that we certainly look at is we only want to make an investment if we feel like we can add value because we don't have the hubris to believe that we at BMG can help everybody. It's not that we don't want to, but there's certain situations where we can be more helpful than others. And we want to we want to be part of situations where there's, again, alignment, but also that we can be truly helpful. And is there some sort of, I don't know, rule of thumb or something about companies, you know, go out to raise money? But do you find that sometimes they're raising money when they should not, or that companies are they often looking for the right amount of money or is there a rule of thumb to say, here's how you know how much money to look for? That's a great question, Dave. I'm glad you asked. In our early days, there were not series investments in CPG for the most part. You did not hear the terminology of series A, B, C, D, you know, EFG, you know, in the CPG space. It was primarily bootstrapped entrepreneurs, you know, that may have raised some friends and family money. And they had to create great business models, the right gross margins. They had to be very thoughtful about their GNA spend. And you know, when we had a chance to partner together, we had real visibility into the business model that they were building. But also, these entrepreneurs knew their businesses in every nuance because they've literally done every job. It's a long-winded answer where I think over time there's been so much capital that's come into the marketplace where there's a lot more money sloshing around in CPG. And that's to the good and the bad. Overall, it's good because it's given more opportunities for more entrepreneurs to help change consumers' lives for the better. But there are some unintended consequences where some companies are overcapitalizing themselves too early, which then leads to potentially building business models that aren't sustainable. So they may be rationalizing low gross margins and we'll fix it later or overbuilding a team too early where there's a lack of continuity where the entrepreneur may not 
know their business like they used to in a bootstrap sense, you know, where they may raise too much capital and founders dilute themselves way too much. I feel like over time, founders have owned a lot less of their businesses than they used to, almost because of the prevalence of capital out there. And then at the valuations, I think a lot of times folks will go, well, if valuations are high, that's a great thing. Well, maybe, maybe if, because alignment's really important, if, if they get to the finish line that they all want, because otherwise it creates these misaligned incentives where if they raise at too high evaluations and the company can't get to tripling or more of that value, then there's a real disconnect between the investor and the entrepreneur. So it's a long-winded answer of it's been a mixed bag, but all in all, more capital in the market's been great because it supports entrepreneurs to help drive towards their vision and their dreams. And that's a good thing of changing consumer lives. Right. I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day where someone had taken over a company, I can't remember their company, they found out it was overvalued and had to go back to the bank and the investors and say, well, you got to take a haircut so we can raise more money and stabilize this business. And yeah, that was Bentley from Good Eggs. You know, yeah. that, that's, a, that's a great, like, yeah, almost like a, rise, a, a rising of the Phoenix. And, you know, Bentley's a tremendous operator and all about alignment. He had to reset the expectations and realign the investors and boards so that he could give the company a realistic shot under his vision and leadership to take good eggs to the level and dreams that they all hoped it could be. And, and he's certainly done that. Right. Again, that's not one of our investments. It's just a, right. a, a friend of ours in, yeah. uh, in Bentley and someone right. I, who I, I consider a friend and really admire and also fellow Marinite. Yeah. Talk about difficult conversations, but a guy who sounded like he did a great job and, and really pulled it through. Um, so that's great. So now you sit on a lot of boards. Um, so is that a function of investing in companies and then you sit on the board and like as a board member, how involved generally are you and other board members like you? What tends to be your role? Yeah. So as part of our investment, we generally become part of the board and it really comes down to that alignment and partnership. Entrepreneurs choose VMG because they're looking for a partner and we're choosing to invest in businesses who are looking for a partner. So, you know, it's just a formality. They call it a board. I, I guess that's the case, but it's really a framework as to how we're going to partner together and have regular dialogue as partners where we can help each other and build towards that strategic vision. I have a friend, Brad, who I'm sure you know, who sits on a lot of boards. Brad Barnhorn? Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. professional um, board member extraordinaire. And he considers himself a consigliere, which I thought was a, a great way of putting it. He certainly is. And, you know, I think the world of Brad Barnhorn, he's been very helpful to many brands over the years and another great Marinite. Yeah. And probably U2's biggest fan. He absolutely. He's been to more U2 concerts than, than anybody I've ever met in my life. Yeah. But, uh, I didn't know they had groupies. Um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's definitely one of them for sure. Known. That's right. So, and he's got a signature purple shirt that he wears to trade shows. So, yeah. if anyone's listening and looking for Brad Barnhorn, look for the guy with this signature. It's like Tiger Woods in the red shirt on Sunday. It's Brad Barnhorn at the at the trade show with his purple shirt. Yeah, he's like the Cheshire Cat. It'd be like a big smile and a purple shirt. That's um, right. So, a founder has a company. They're growing well. And it's time to like get an investment sort of like, you know, from the time they make that 
decision to the time that maybe it sells out to a strategic? What's the quick and dirty? In, in our hypothetical case study, what, what's the stage of the company where you want us to start the hypothetical scenario? Let's say they have $14 million in sales. I assume they're probably not profitable. Friends and family money, you know, good products, more of a skeleton team, but growing quickly. Great. I think the first things an entrepreneur with that type of business should be thinking about at, you know, as they think about raising capital and, and what an investor will look for, it's really around, can they articulate the vision of what they're trying to build? So even though it's growing fast and they seem to have some traction, like what's the vision? Are they trying to build the next blank? And what does that total addressable market look like of what they're trying to build? Because an investor is not only investing in what the business is today, but what, what it can be. And, you know, entrepreneurs should be able to explain what it is that they're trying to build and how they think they may get there. And then you kind of peel back the onion on, okay, well, where's the business today? And that hypothetical scenario of 14 million of revenue, well, what does that look like? Because all revenue is not created equal. Is there a real hero product and a hero skew? Because that's generally something that can be very attractive to investors because, you know, it, you know, it, it shows that there's real consumer affinity for something very specific as it relates to that brand, as opposed to a whole scatter shot of SKUs where they're just throwing stuff against the wall. Generally, that kind of machine gun approach is less attractive to investors with real focus on something and real success. And looking at the sell-through data on the retail side of how that hero skew is doing at notable key retailers, that's really interesting to investors. And on the direct-to-consumer side, looking at you know customer acquisition costs and retention and loyalty and you know things of that nature can be really telling for investors as well. And what kind of business model? So what are the gross margins? Gross margin is something that is constantly under-focused on. And at the end of the day, it's something very hard to fix. Entrepreneurs, we always get it right from the beginning. If the rationale is we'll fix it later, very hard to fix it later. Like get it right in the food world. Ideally, you're getting 40% plus gross margins after trade, after all product costs and freight and things of that nature. Because then when you scale, you can almost model it out. You're going to need less capital to get to the finish line. If a food entrepreneur is building a business with 10% gross margins, well, you can do the math. It's going to be a tough road. You're not gonna, it's going to be hard to generate dollars to build your brand through marketing. It's just mathematical in nature. So get the gross margins right from the beginning. And supply chain, retail traction, again, founder alignment, those are the big pieces. And then along the way, thoughtfully scaling the team, thinking about the right retail rollout, if that's part of the strategy. How do you build out the supply chain? So not only works for today, but if part of the process is selling the business someday, are you leaving enough white space for that next owner of the business to scale into that total addressable market, but also have the supply chain to be able to, to supply that future growth? So that's, that's probably kind of a quick little sketch. It's interesting though, because VMG Velocity made good. I haven't heard you mention Velocity, which... Often it seems like- Plus that sell-through. 
Oh, so through, okay, go. Okay, yeah, through, so through. I guess sell through performance. I, I could have said velocity, you know, synonymously, but that's whether that's direct to consumer or retail, that's the name of the game. But you know, it's just a, it's just a fancy way of saying our consumers buying the product. Yeah, but it's interesting from an operator's point of view, and I wouldn't have thought this years ago. Not that I'm sophisticated now, but I've just had a few lessons along the way. We always think distribution first, and velocity is almost like a secondary thought, but good velocity makes distribution growth pretty easy and it makes profitability much easier and it makes so many things easier because it makes it easier to get good margin if you have good velocity and which can lead to good volume. Absolutely. Good- I mean, that's the first thing we look at a company and, and there's seemingly very strong revenue growth on kind of a wholesale kind of basis on their own P&L. Right. First thing we want to look at, what are the velocities look like? Is it really turning or is it just getting a bunch of new doors that may or may not work. Right. The key metrics that you think operators should watch would be gross margin. And then their velocity of units per store per week. And you prefer, you think also like not being over skewed, not too many, not sales. Real hero skew. Like what do they stand for? To use an example that isn't one of our companies, like if you look at like a vital proteins, well, they're synonymous with their blue tub of collagen. That is clearly their hero skew that really crushes it for them. If you think about another local business here, Annie's grew up on mac and cheese. Well, right. you know, you think about all sorts of other things that Annie's may have today, but Annie's in the early days, they crushed it on mac and cheese. So, right. I mean, even if you take a, a brand that's known for not being a narrow or skew type of brand like Stonewall Kitchens, which is a terrific brand, breaks down. I mean, their blueberry jam. They sell a lot of blueberry jam. And that's a company that's, their model is a more of a, a broader skew model. That's right. And they got there over time. And that's the thing. A yeah. lot of times folks are looking at it based on where the, a company looks like today. And they forget about the journey to get to a platform brand. There right. often is a rush to be a quote unquote platform brand, as opposed to really looking back and dissecting its history. And almost every successful CPG company started out with a real hero set of SKUs that really cranked it on velocities and had a great business model with gross margin behind it. And then it became a platform over time as the consumer gave the brand permission because ultimately the consumer decides. Right. And then sometimes there's a little bit of magic with certain brands and products where you're not sure why, but they just did something right. That's right. So speed round, I'll ask you a series of questions, one sentence or less for the answers. Sound okay. good? Sound good. What's your biggest challenge personally every day? Balancing time between the family who I love and a job that I love too, but always family first. And what's the one thing you look forward most each day? Waking up and seeing my wife and kids. And what's the one decision or action that you feel was the tipping point and led to your success? The day that I got off that stage at the ACG luncheon and Scott Case, one of the co-founders of BMG, handed me her business card. What are the three skills that you think people in private equity really have to excel at? Empathy, grit, moral character. That is great. And aside from money, what do you think are the two most important benefits that a company receives from private equity investment? It's tools and resources. Right, right. Because it sounds like you guys plug into a network that can be very helpful 
And then you combine that with a strategic approach that not all founders have. Capital is a commodity. There's plenty of money. You know, there's, there's really a very finite universe of capital and money that can be truly helpful towards supporting entrepreneurs to achieve their dreams. Right. And with the podcast, what was the purpose of the podcast? Well, you know, why'd you start it? And what, what lessons have you learned along the way in podcasting? Well, we purposely named it Unfinished Biz, you know, and it's because we love the profile, the entrepreneur profile podcast, but we found a lot of them were very retrospective in nature. They were interviewing entrepreneurs that, you know, that seemingly finished their journey and it was positioned in a way where it was all rainbows and unicorns. And in some regard, I guess in many regards, our thought was that could make many aspiring entrepreneurs look in the mirror and go, well, what am I doing wrong? You know, why did this other person have it so easy? And that's almost 100% of the time untrue. It's just that that's how the story was framed in retrospect. And so that's why we named it Unfinished Biz. And we only have entrepreneurs that are still in the thick of it who had some traction, but also are very real about what their struggles were and what they're still struggling with today. Because we're all human and we, we have things that we're doing well and we always have things that we're all still working on. That's the joy of being human. Whether you're an entrepreneur, investor, husband, wife, child, that's just uh, that's part of the magic of the life journey. Yeah, I know if like for me running my company over the years has been, you know, with ADD, it's like I have that horrible procrastination habit. So just being productive and staying on schedule is a horrible battle. But the question is, do you do other things well enough to to compensate? And everyone has their different flavors of, of challenges. So, you know, you've commented a little bit off and on on VMG throughout this. So do you want to take a minute and just sort of like lay out there what you want people to know about VMG and, and communicate straight to the audience? Yeah. I mean, again, we love to help support all entrepreneurs in the consumer space. You know, it really comes down to that. And we make a few investments along the way, but we, again, it's all about the ecosystem. How can we support entrepreneurs, retailers who sell entrepreneurial products and the global CPG companies that have the scale to help transform consumer lives as well, because that's what it's all about. We want to help support innovation that changes the health and wellness profile of consumers. And if anyone's looking for me, you can find me on LinkedIn. You know, I'm a very active LinkedIner, if that's even a term. Again, I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's, it's, I, I value our friendship very much and I've always admired what you've been building at, at your respective companies. So again, thank you for having me on the show. It's been, been a lot of fun. Thanks. I mean, thanks for coming on and I'm an admirer of what you do at BMG and, and I think your podcast is great too. So people can take a listen to your podcast. Where, where can they find your podcast? You can find it on your iPhone or a, a podcast app of your choice, Spotify, our website, unfinishedbiz.com. So wherever you find your podcast, you can find Unfinished Biz. And like you said, we just finished up our 50th episode. Time flies by. It is exciting. All right. Well, thank you so much. And you enjoy the, the beautiful Marin day outside. Thank you. I appreciate it. Give it up for Dave Hirschkopf, everybody. You've been listening to The H-Spot on the Funnel Radio channel. Never miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe at the hspotpodcast.com.